Welcome everyone to Ancient Afterlives. Uh, we've got Dr. Katie Turner with us today to talk about Jewish clothing and particularly about Jewish clothing in films. Um, so Katie, if you want to introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Turner. I have a PhD in Theology and Religious Studies from King's College London and I specialize in first century clothing and dress and how the New Testament period has been represented in later Christian art and drama. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And I should also say that we have um, also another doctor with us, Dr. Joseph Scales, or Joe, as you've probably heard his voice throughout. Um, but I suppose I want to open up the discussion with kind of why is clothing so important? I think often it's, it's part of films that I don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to or a lot of visual culture that I'm not particularly looking for when I look at a piece of art. I want to pick your brain, but why, why is clothing so important and why should we care about clothing? So I think first we need to differentiate between a few different terms. I'm gonna go straight into that real academic thing of defining terms. <laughs> so um, clothing is referring to what we wear every day. You know, our shirts, jeans, dresses, trousers, whatever. Um, that's clothing. Dress, usually that implies how we arrange our clothing on our body. Um, so other things can be incorporated in dress that we wouldn't call clothing. So we might have jewelry and other accessories in dress, hairstyles and hair fashion, shoes, belts, that's all part of dress. And dress behavior is the putting together all, of all of those items going out and you know living and other people seeing how we've arranged things on our bodies costume sometimes in a lot of the older um clothing and dress studies academics would use costume to refer to what i've just described as dress or dress behavior but i like to stick strictly to costume being what actors have arranged on their bodies, either by themselves or by a costume director when they are performing. Um, because I think it's really important that we differentiate that from what you put on yourself. So there's a big difference between what you put on yourself to live your life every day and what somebody else puts on you so that you can embody somebody else in a performance. Um, so two separate things then as to why it's important for us to pay attention. So I think it's important for us to pay attention to clothing and dress and dress behavior because it is an intimate expression of our identities. Everybody gets dressed every single day. We all participate in a sort of mini performance when we get dressed in the morning. What we put on, it's who we are. It's an expression of our place in society, our jobs and occupations. They influence what we wear. Our age influences what we wear. Our ethnic background, our um, national background, where we live. Our religion can influence what we wear. So all of those things, they're deeply communicative. And because they're so 
intrinsic to just human behavior. We all know how to read each other, like a language. But that language is not universal, and it doesn't stay the same through time. So when, when I dress myself in a certain way, if I went back 300 years, I am not a big fan of skirts and dresses, but I'm a woman. And so how would that be received by somebody 300 years ago? They might receive that very differently and think I'm being improper in how I dress. So there are a lot of barriers to our understanding of clothing, dress, and dress behavior when we go outside of ourselves into different contexts. Um, that could be within our own time. So if you are part of the Hasidic or the Haredi Jewish community and you have distinct dress behaviors, those are not necessarily comprehensible to people outside of that community, especially if you are outside of the Jewish community more broadly. So a lot of this is um, intrinsic to our immediate identity. Costume is important for a lot of the same reasons. So when we watch things on screen, we are understanding things about that character, about their setting, about their context, about their identity, how they're relating to other people on screen through their clothing that has been arranged by a costume designer, usually quite collaboratively with a director and a cinematographer and a script writer, all in order to communicate all of these ideas that our clothing communicates anyway. But they're doing it in service to a narrative, in service to a performance. So they tell us immediately what social position the character is in, where they fit in their community. Are they an outsider? Or do they look like the top of the pack socially? Are they super religious? Are they um, a good person? Are they a bad person? So all of these things, we know how to read them without even thinking about it. It just clicks in our minds instantaneously because we live in the world and in the world, clothing is language. I love that. I love the, the idea of kind of interpretation and, and clothing was becoming a text. Um, for biblical interpreters to read because often I feel like kind of maybe popular culture and examinations of the Bible within yeah you know, within wider pop culture is, is often kind of secondary in in favor of uh, imagine air quotes here but kind of proper biblical interpretation but they love that that idea of coming to text so I suppose second question to this is, is why Jewish clothing and why Jewish clothing particularly of the New Testament period um, in films and, and visual culture, why is that particularly intriguing to you? So um, for me personally, I, uh, I got interested in it through an assignment on my master's course. Um, I took a class on the passion taught by Professor Joan Taylor, who ended up being my doctoral supervisor and um, she's amazing. Um, and the class was the passion, history, text, and representation. And so she really did go through each of those things. We looked specifically at the passion narrative. We compared synoptics. We looked at John 
um, and the differences and placing that narrative into his historical context. And, um, and then we looked at all sorts of different forms of representation in art, in music, and in film. Um, and for an assignment, we could take some form of representation and analyze it and present back to the class. And then that would end up being our paper for, um, for our mark. And I chose two films. I looked at The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's 2004 film. And I looked at Ben-Hur, um, the William Wyler 1959 film. And I compared the two. Um, and one of the things that really struck me as I was reading analysis of Mel Gibson's film is that quite a number of people, it's like a really analyzed movie. Um, more than any other Jesus film, I think, has been written about Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. So there was a lot of analysis that I could look at. And so many people mentioned how the film was anti-Semitic and they would touch on the presentation of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin as a big part of what made the film anti-Semitic. And when you put that against a lot of the other discussion, you had all these other uh, chapters in edited volumes and journal articles that would say the language was wrong in Mel Gibson's film because, and then they would compare it to what should have been spoken in the first century. Or this element of Mel Gibson's drama was wrong because, and compare it to the first century or compare it to the gospel narratives as described. And I started to realize that nobody did the same thing for appearance and um, and costume, there was a lot of assertion about it being wrong, but then that's where the comment would stop. And so it made me really curious, if it's wrong, what should it be? Um, yeah, that I just really wanted to know. So I guess that leads on to like, uh, kind of a rather big question. But how do we know what people were wearing in the first century? Um, so it's a good question. And we actually have quite a fair bit of evidence, uh, which I found amazing when I started to investigate it, because I thought if no one's talking about it, maybe it's because we don't know. Um, and that's not correct. We do know. So we have a fairly large body of evidence that can be broken into three separate categories. We have textual evidence, so things that are written by people. We have visual evidence, so art, sculpture, that sort of thing. Um, and then we have actual material remains. Um, so in terms of the Jewish community specifically, that second group of artistic visual evidence we don't really have. And that's because most Jewish people of the first century believed that the prohibition against idolatry included any representation of the human form. And so they didn't represent themselves or the human body. 
um, whether we actually have representation of Jews, like Jewish self-representation, say, in the Jewish community in Alexandria or in Jewish communities in Rome, because there were plenty of Jews who lived in the diaspora and they were well integrated into normal society um, and they might very well have represented themselves or had portraiture done of themselves and that makes up part of the artistic record from the first century that we have. It's highly likely we just don't know that those faces that we're looking at are Jewish faces. So in terms of known Jewish representation of the human form that we are missing. Textual evidence, we have quite a lot. Um, Greco-Roman authors absolutely loved discussing the clothed body. They particularly enjoyed analyzing and critiquing and condemning the um, dress appearance of other groups that were not Greco-Roman people, and they also liked criticizing each other. Um, so we've got a lot of that. And we have some references in the New Testament. We have quite a lot of references to clothing manufacture and some references to dress in rabbinic literature. So there's a fairly good catalog of textual references to clothing, clothing manufacture, dress, dress behavior. Um, then in terms of material remains, we have a lot from within the land of Israel, like historic boundaries of what we might call the land of Israel, mostly in the Judean desert. And we have some of the best preserved remains from anywhere in the Greco-Roman world that are coming to us from the Judean desert, which is amazing. And um, Roman dress historians recognize this. And often you will read, when you read analysis of Roman dress, they will often cite remains that have been discovered in the Judean desert. So why is this not forming part of New Testament scholar, biblical scholar analysis of the first century? I don't know, but it's not. Um, in terms of the numbers of remains, we have in the thousands of textile remains, um, shoes, belts, jewelry, other items of dress, um, they're not all well-preserved big garments that we can tell quickly what they are. Mostly it's fragments. But in terms of preserved garments, our best collection comes from the Cave of Letters, which was discovered by Yigel Yudin in the 1960s. Uh, the Cave of Letters is in the Masada area. Um, and it was inhabited by a group of Jewish people who had fled Jerusalem during the Second Revolt against Rome in 132 to 134 CE. And they very unfortunately, they died in that cave, um, which is awful. But uh, what that has left for us is a, almost a, like a treasure trove of personal effects and that includes clothing. So we have some complete tunics, we have some complete mantles, I mean near, near complete, you know. Um, when you step away and you look at that selection of textiles in comparison to the artistic evidence that we have 
from outside the Jewish world, from elsewhere in the Greco-Roman world, you see that these clothing, this clothing that was worn by Jewish people maps on pretty, pretty close to what's being depicted elsewhere. And so all of a sudden, that entire wealth of artistic evidence, even though it's not specifically coming from known Jewish communities, it's opened up to us to analyze dress more fully. Incredible. I have so many questions that are bringing me from this book. The one that kind of, two kind of stick out for me. One, it's the question about why biblical scholars aren't paying attention to dress. And I'm actually reminded of a discussion we had um, about the Dead Sea Scrolls and their discovery um, with Ingrid a few episodes ago, um, or last season in, in this case, but about how context of, of where we find these texts aren't important but kind of the, the mapping of the room isn't 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 important things about um like the recent discovery say recent it might it might have been in the last couple of years of, of the um the baby basket um in Qumran and that kind of getting way less attention it's just like thousands of year old um object and everyone was obsessed with this idea of the text um, and it's kind of prioritization of the text. And I wonder whether it fits into that kind of wider um, preoccupation and, and almost obsession um, that biblical scholars have with, with prioritizing the text and, and the biblical text as, as core. And then also what that says um, perhaps about, about scholarship. And that's someone's that's second question. She's had so many thoughts about that. Um, and also this, this idea that Hellenistic and the, and the Greco-Roman, I'm probably using the term Hellenistic, completely wrong as it's not a uh, um, New Testament or kind of early Christian or Greco-Roman scholar. Um, but this idea that the boundaries aren't blurred at all, that well, they are blurred even. Perhaps we can cut that bit out, hang on. But this idea that the boundaries between um, kind of what is Jewish and what is not isn't as clear-cut as we might think or is kind of we're invited to think perhaps through texts or through representations I'm always kind of very clear reminded of Pliny's letters to Trajan um they always really stick in my mind um and they're talking about Christians um so a different context but this idea of like this very distinct group um that is made up and, and this idea that actually these kind of ideas of structured groups and concrete groups that perhaps didn't exist. Do you think that's that's what's being exposed when we look at clothing is actually we start to see a breakdown of perhaps these categories that as scholars we put or as as, as culture we have perhaps like imprinted on the world. And I know Joe, you've got probably got things to say about this as well. So I will shut up now. Um, I think I'll address the first question first, um, which is why don't we pay enough attention? And I think there's a couple things going on there. One is, yes, there's an obsession with the text. And I think that comes possibly, and I'm really just spitballing here, but I think it comes from the idea that the text that we're dealing with when we are looking at the New Testament is a sacred text, and not just a sacred text, but the sacred text. Um, 
Now, there are plenty of people, myself included, that would say no to that. But people who believe it is the sacred text, they dominate the field, they drove the field. And if it is the sacred text, then that is going to be absorbing so much attention. And we are still just living in the legacy of that. Um, the other thing is that I think a lot of people thought this question was asked and answered. What did people look like? Well, you know, um, Gustave Doré drew his illustrations after spending so much time studying it. And uh, James Tussaud has hundreds, I mean, I think over 300 illustrations just of the New Testament narrative after he spent multiple trips going to the Holy Land and the surrounding areas to study what people looked like. And these were all presented with 19th century historical authority. And for whatever reason, that just got stuck. And nobody thought, is that correct? <laughs> um, and no, they were not correct. They went to 19th century Palestine. They looked at 19th century Palestinian populations and they said, that's what they must have looked like in the first century. That's bad historicity. Um, that's not good scholarship. And I don't really know why these things aren't being challenged all the time and yet so many scholars today they continue to use art produced by Christian artists from the medieval period through to James Tussaud to illustrate their historic scholarship which continues to create a link between what's in those paintings and what was real in the first century. So you'll often see something James Tussaud painted at the top of a blog post on, um, on like BAS, you know, on their website, or the cover of a book. So, so there's a problem BAS there. BAS is the Sorry. publication. It's the Biblical Archaeology. Biblical Archaeological Society? I'm going to get it wrong. that's right. No, I think that's right. <laughs> I, what also comes to mind there, just to pick back up on that, is this idea that we're kind of, well, we know what Jesus looks like because we see Jesus everywhere. everywhere. Jesus is always on a crucifix wearing a little like, loincloth and that's what Jesus looks like. We don't need any more information so I actually I wonder kind of the, the, the pervasiveness of this image of Jesus a very white um good looking Jesus am I allowed to say that um very kind of a, a Jesus that kind of perhaps like perpetuates kind of western ideas of, of masculinity and, and maleness or we know what Jesus looks like. Why, why do we need to ask that question anymore? Why is that important? Surely what's important is what Jesus said and whether Jesus existed in the first place. So I wonder if that's a, something that's, that's going on as well. Yeah, I think, it's madness. Yeah, I think the images are just so pervasive that it's hard to pause and to ask yourself, do I actually know that? Are those images right? Um, 
in one book, yeah, I didn't want to get her name wrong, Marsha Kupfer, she writes that the passion narrative is the most illustrated single narrative in art in human history. Um, and I think that's really core to all of these issues. It's everywhere. It's carved into churches. It's in church stained glass. It's in schools. It's filled in museums. It's absolutely everywhere. Um, Jesus has been portrayed in film more than any other figure or character, fictional, non-fictional, whatever. Uh, so this is really, really, really deeply entrenched in the cultural consciousness, and that's ultimately going to impact scholars. But I think there's one final thing to why don't we care about clothing, and that is misogyny. It's seen as a female, woman-centered thing. It's not real scholarship. It's very soft. Um, women care about frivolous things like fashion, and men do real scholarship. That's really, really at the heart of a lot of this. I'm certain of it. Um, but it's not just, it's really not just biblical studies. There was an amazing King Tut exhibit that was touring 2019 through 2020, and then unfortunately had to be canceled because of COVID. Um, but I got to see it before that all, that shutdown happened. And it was spectacular. So many artifacts, the most things that came out of King Tut's tomb as has been put on tour in any of the tours that have been done. And even though part of the excavation of the tomb included a wealth of textile material, because the Egyptians, like all human societies, cared a lot about clothing, they sent full wardrobes worth of clothing with King Tut into the afterlife. Um, the sarcophagus was wrapped in a beautiful embroidered textile. So there's just so much that could be put on display. And it was neglected for years. A lot of the material started to break down and fall apart. It just wasn't given the same preservation as the rest of the artifacts that came out of the tomb. So what was originally excavated now, just most of it doesn't really exist. Um, but in this exhibit, they had a single pair of gloves on display and they didn't even mention the textiles beyond that. It wasn't part of the story. And I thought that was really sad. There were plenty of places where it could have been in integrated, even if they couldn't display the textiles themselves because they are in too poor condition and it was just ignored. So it's, it's much bigger than biblical studies. I think that this ties together um, lots of the things you've raised, particularly around, so there's not just questions of how dress, adornment and clothing reflects uh, an individual's or a group's identity, but then how they're perceived. And this kind of 
I mean, it kind of seems obvious when you say it, but it's not something I've ever really thought about. Uh, Jesus as the most portrayed character in human history that you know that we're aware of. So these reinforcements happen again and again and again, but then the same reinforcements that we've done clothing, we know what it means. Uh, and then also the diminishments because of the reasons as I think you've rightly pointed out misogyny definitely and that the, well the text tells us what we need to know it tells us what the high priest wore it tells us uh, all these other kind of things so there's this kind of plethora of causes that seem to push down um, on the study of this um, so I think this is like such a an interesting thing to also think about or well, why is it that certain areas of uh, the study of the ancient world are pushed aside or considered less important um, but then also a great opportunity to say this is really important and the impacts aren't just for understanding the ancient world but understanding ourselves today and our perceptions of the ancient world so maybe that's like a segue into how has your research kind of uncovered um, kind of common common themes or common understandings about what dress meant in antiquity and how have some of those things kind of maybe been challenged in your own work? Uh, so just to clarify, are you asking about how representation portrays what dress meant? Or what dress actually meant in the first century? Both and either. Okay. So, um, I think the overwhelming message that you get from the evidence that we have for actual first century dress is that Jewish populations of the Greco-Roman world look like Greco-Roman people. And I don't think that that's a shocking conclusion. Um, we have so much scholarship about how Jews were Hellenized and they lived in a Greco-Roman world. And for some reason, those conclusions just didn't extend to their appearance. And so we have this really sort of jarring thing where we visualize the populations as looking not Greco-Roman at all, but yet somehow in every other way, living in a Greco-Roman world and having Hellenism influencing thought and ritual practice and ideas about Jewish identity. And it's why wouldn't that extend to the most intimate display of identity, which is our clothing. Um, when you look more closely, though, at the specifics of Jewish dress behavior, and you really drill down into that conclusion of they looked Greco-Roman, you can start to ask more nuanced questions. Did they arrange their clothing on their bodies any differently? So even if the structure of clothing, the basics of clothing were the same, were they wearing it in a different sort of way? Um, we know that women likely veiled, covered their heads. Was this restricted to certain social classes of women? Were enslaved women granted the same head covering? Um, were the way did did they veil in any particular kind of way that was nuanced to a Jewish identity? 
there is uh, there are two laws of dress that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Um, one mandates the wearing of tzitzit or fringes on the four corners of one's garment, and the other prohibits the mixing of linen and wool together in a clothing textile. It's fine in other textiles, so domestic textiles could have that mixing. That mixing is called sha'atnets. So most textiles could have sha'atnets, but um, clothing textiles could not. So were these two laws of dress being adhered to in the first century? And if they were, what does that mean? If they weren't, what does that mean? And what we find actually is sha'atnets, the law of sha'atnets was being adhered to. We don't find any textiles in hundreds, thousands of remains that have been examined that are violating that law. So that's really interesting. Um, and that influenced the weaving and dyeing and garment construction industry that Jewish people were participating in. The law of tzitzit, however, which would be a visual marker of difference in the Greco-Roman world, would be something that if everybody, men and women alike, were attaching tassels to the four corners of their garments, somebody would have picked up on this difference. That we have very minimal evidence for. And so that minimal evidence becomes something really intriguing also, especially because one of the only places that we do have evidence that it was a feature of Jewish dress is in the New Testament in description of Jesus's clothing. So what does that mean? I think there's some fascinating questions that we can start asking and exploring when we really get into this stuff. Um, about how Jewish identity was being articulated within an overwhelming Greco-Roman construct. In terms of how it's been represented later on, what we mostly get is a division that says that Jesus and his followers looked one way and everybody else looked a different way. And that division has been there really since the early medieval period, and it's still very strongly represented today in film costume. Um, it runs straight through the artistic history, um, and it's overwhelmingly done through Orientalism. So not only are we depicting the first century world incorrectly, not only are we depicting this very dark visual divide between Jew and Christian, which is problematically anachronistic, but we are pulling Muslim populations into that and really problematizing their own dress culture within representations of the biblical narrative. I hope that answered <laughs> the question, Joe. I think more than answers it. I just thought it might be beneficial to give a quick kind of 
as quick as you can, but breakdown of how you understand Orientalism, particularly in the context of depictions of dress. Sure. Um, so I would say that Orientalism is a way of seeing from a Western perspective. And I, I hesitate to use the term Western because there wasn't a sort of strict idea of West and East in the earlier medieval period. So more like Western Christendom would be better to think about it in terms of Christendom. So it's a way of seeing from that Western Christian perspective that, um, so it's a way of seeing that homogenizes and distorts Eastern clothing, dress, and dress behavior in a stereotyped and un unthoughtful manner, um, mostly Muslim populations are what are being drawn into that. And that way of seeing is being used so that Western Christendom can say something about themselves. So it's, it's an abuse of another group of people, a vast and varied and different group of people, to smooth them all over, to not see their differences, and to utilize it to your own ends. I don't know if that was the best definition. <laughs> I have a, a question following that is like, who, who, who does that apply in, in the film context? I think in maybe examples of, of who, who are the groups that get um, homogenized blood into one, we've already talked about kind of Jesus and his followers and their depictions, but who, who are the groups that are stigmatized often in film portrayals of um, New Testament narratives? So passion is, is one we want to pick up on. Who, who are the groups that are stigmatized? And is that, is that right in reflection of, of what, what the biblical narratives say? Is, is that an accurate depiction of events or does that actually just further kind of our own purposes in, in kind of, yeah, or does it further filmmakers' perspective as part of kind of Western Christendom, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so I think, I think to a degree, filmmakers don't entirely know what they're doing. <laughs> Um, and I don't mean this, uh, I don't mean like they're stupid or, or something. Um, what I mean is that in the few places where I've been able to get interviews with costume designers and film directors of Jesus films, they always talk about how they reference art and because they're referencing art, they're referencing what those artists were doing. They're then replicating it. And they aren't necessarily realizing all the problems that they're replicating because that art is not historically accurate. Um, so, <clears throat> sorry. To get at what uh, is happening in film, we need to understand what's happening in art because that's the point of reference. 
And what we usually have to kind of grossly generalize across a thousand years of art history is that artists were looking east and either seeing real people who did genuinely live in the Holy Land and its surrounding areas or hearing about those people and then just imagining what they look like, then smushing all of that together into a lovely mix, a melange of oriental type things, and then using that to depict any figure that was not Christian. And I know that is quite anachronistic to say, but that is how it was seen, that Jesus, the Holy Family, Jesus's disciples, the Marys, Veronica, um, Paul, once he converts, obviously, they are all Christian. And anybody outside of that is not. The further outside of that you are, so if you are Caiaphas or even Pontius Pilate, the more Oriental you would be depicted. Because Orientalism stood in for the heathen, the flesh-bound mortal world. The closer you were to Christ, the less Oriental you would be. That dynamic was then transported into the Old Testament narratives as well. So when we have proto-Christian figures, figures who are prefiguring Jesus, they are given the same treatment. So we can find instances where Moses and Aaron are the good Christians, and so they are depicted the way you would see Jesus and his disciples or apostles depicted. And the Pharaoh is the heathen, and he's given um, a Jewish hat or something Oriental about him. So that's, that's really what we're getting in film. We're still getting that in film today. So Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, they will be the most orientalized, the most othered in a narrative. Depending on the film director, they might be all called the Pharisees. Um, but we should know now that while there might have been some Pharisees that were part of the Sanhedrin, most of the Sanhedrin were not Pharisees. Um, so they're being most othered. But I think there's also a real, real problem in depictions of Mary Magdalene. Because she goes through a conversion that is so beloved by artists and filmmakers, we get to see a figure go from Oriental to not Oriental because she is making the transition from heathen to Christian. And this transition usually involves 
some part of her body being exposed and then being covered, being heavily made up to then being stripped down with less makeup, to having a lot of jewelry and a lot of accessories to then losing the jewelry and accessories, brightly, deeply saturated colors to more muted colors, and what I think to be the most problematic is we often have a lot of coined jewelry as part of her pre-conversion costume, and then that coined jewelry is lost. And the reason that I call that out as being the most problematic is because in most Eastern traditions, in um, a lot of Bedouin traditions and in a lot of other cultures, not strictly Islamic, um, coin jewelry is dowry money. This is what women are bestowed when they are married. It becomes part of a symbol of marriage and family and unity and the Western Christian representation has distorted that into a symbol of a prostitute. Um, so I, yeah, that bit is the most troubling to me. Yeah, I was going to ask you kind of what the gendered implications of, of this are because yeah, the, the the Mary Magdalene imagery is kind of what sticks out. I always remember the ones where she's got kind of her breasts exposed or yeah, very kind of bright colours. Those are always the images that stand out as to, to who Mary Magdalene is and have probably done everything to kind of fuel this stereotype that or kind of a misrepresentation that she is a sex worker and today I saw a tweet kind of in big letters bold letters saying there is nowhere in scripture where Mary Magdalene's referred to in any sense that she sold any part um, of sex for money or exchanged money for sex in any way or acted as a sex worker in any way um, but this kind of stereotype pervades are there any other kind of aspects of, of perhaps gender and morality and that, what really struck me is kind of maybe ideas of purity um, that we get in these representations? So um, a lot of the things that we see in representations of Mary Magdalene pre-conversion, and I, I dislike this sense of conversion again it's an anachronism but that is entirely what's being presented so that's the terminology we have to use um what we see in her presentation we are also seeing in the most sort of vilified jewish figures so the deeply saturated dye colors um jewelry and accessories, gold detailing, ostentation. This is not just being associated with sex work through Mary Magdalene and thus uh, that sort of sexual immorality, but it's also being associated with the immorality of the high priests who want Jesus crucified. So those two immoralities are then being drawn together by having the same sorts of visual symbols being used to communicate both of that. Um, and I think 
there's a lesson to being communicated to people today, particularly through Mary Magdalene, about what is good and proper appearance, what is virtuous appearance, and what isn't. And when we are associating things like bright colors, patterned textiles, I haven't even mentioned that yet, but patterns and stripes, this is a big part of a non-Christian appearance, um, jewelry, makeup, hair fashion, you know, nice hair fashion, anything like that, that is part of normal dress culture. But then you are associating those details with sexual immorality. And then through the high priests, also with cravenness, with greed, with hypocrisy, there's really troubling messages being communicated to an audience. Um, what we see in the appearance of Jesus and the apostles and Mary once she converts is muted, plain, undecorated, unadorned clothing loose, nothing form-fitting, covered bodies. Um, for the women, their heads become cut, their heads or hair becomes covered, but for the men, they now don't have covered heads, no turbans for them. So yeah, there's really uncomfortable messaging happening, I think, both within a Western dress context, but also once you include the Orientalism that's in all of this, what sort of messages are we conveying? Also, it's a hyper-sexualization through Mary Magdalene of the exotic Eastern Oriental woman. Mm -hmm.